All right, so it's week three of How We Never Covered, and we are talking about Atomic Blonde. Not how I thought this first, this third round was going to go. I was a little surprised myself. It was a close one. It really was. Kind of eked it out there in the end. Uh, Atomic Blonde uh, went past Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, Same movie. <laughs> pretty, pretty dominantly. Uh, 80% of the vote there. Uh, while the Babadook uh, took out Little Mermaid, and then Atomic Blonde knocked out Fried Green Tomatoes, which I kind of thought would go to the finals. It felt like it had a lot of yeah, push it, early on. Early on, it had some legs, for sure. And then the Babadook, obviously, Brave was another early success, and then Babadook edged that out barely. Uh, and Atomic Blonde, Babadook was a 52-48 split. And our biggest wins uh, were Brave over 300, obviously. and <laughs> Just absolutely destroyed it. And, so funny. And the Babadook over Little Mermaid, both at 81 to 19%, while Atomic Blonde uh, went over the Babadook, and Babadook went over Brave at 52 to 48. So really close. Tight, tight. Tight yeah. tournament. Good pickings, I guess. Yeah, yeah. This, this was fun. Again, very surprised. I kind of expected us, uh, especially based on like the first two rounds, to be talking about Babadook today. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. Because, wow, did that thing just... Whew. Yeah, I, I thought that was the surefire yeah. winner. I mean, it didn't really meet any strong resistance until it got to Atomic Blonde in the last round, right? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, Brave, it was pretty close. Okay. Yeah, okay. but other than that, Babadook just killed Little Mermaid. Uh, really strong showing against Monster. I want uh, that movie. <laughs> so, but Charlie's made it. She made it anyway, and probably yep. what is the most good trashy movie of this tournament? Uh, yes. of, of the tournament that we talk about. That, that we're talking about. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, that that we're, that's made it so far. Absolutely. Yeah. Our first two, uh, the first two to make it through uh, their brackets were definitely more. I mean, Truman Show is kind of good trashy in that middle brow sort of way. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to be in a film studies, but it's got a. Level of, I guess, harder prestige to it of the films we don't sure, normally do. Sure, yeah, it's an but, Oscar nominee, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Spirited could... Away is definitely probably going to show up in a film studies course, like you mentioned. Yeah, I'm still thinking about Spirited Away. I thought about Spirited Away for most of watching Atomic Blonde. Uh, definitely outside of our uh, our normal, uh, you know, we've talked about movies of its ilk of of you know that caliber. You know, we've talked about Miyazaki before, but we, you know, we always kind of flag those as as cheats or kind of massaged picks. But yeah, Atomic Blonde, you're right, Arthur. It's just. Uh, Boy, doesn't get it's uh, what we do good or trasher than that. So yeah, I, I thought it was a fun week. Um, we saw some, I think, drop off in, in engagement a couple times, but overall, I think that last round really it picked back up. It heated up. This yeah. week's been pretty, pretty good so far. But we'll talk about that later. But this week is Atomic Blonde. That's right. So hello everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We gather around a table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in the film says course. And this week's film, as we've already said, is that case. It is Charlize Theron in Atomic Blonde. And uh, so I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. And back in the studio again. No longer a uh, biological bomb. Uh, it's me. It's Dalton. Yeah, hey. we're glad you're here. I'm so glad to be back. Uh, it's it's nice to not be out in public anymore again. Yeah. Well, no, it's still terrible. It's nice to know that I'm doing the thing that is socially responsible to do. Yeah, there we go. You feel you look you look very righteous, man. It's so good to see both your faces. I mean, it's just <laughs> not the same. You know, it's we, a little weird, even it's with the a little video. Weird. And I don't want listeners to hear that we're in the same room and take that as a green light to go be in the same room as people. Uh, but. It is nice to see your smiling faces. It is nice to smile at your face. Um, so here we are, gathered around, talking about Atomic Blonde. In case you're tuning in the show for the very first time, let me tell you this. It is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And that doesn't mean we're going to spoil the ending. And this is a spy movie, so that means it's super plotty. 
And uh, so the plot's going to be a lot of your experience of the film, and we are going to spoil that, but not till the end. What we'll do is a synopsis. Then we'll do thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be very, very gentle in the spoiler areas. Then we move on into uh, a little exercise that we call expanding the syllabus, in which we talk about other movies that orbit around this film, which may or may not touch on some of those plot points, so there may be some mild spoilers there. And then we have some kicking music to let you know that we've gotten down to business and put down our socks um, that are appropriate only for business, and therefore uh, we have worn the appropriate clothes for analysis. And therefore, uh, all spoiler bets are off. You've been warned. Without any further ado, uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, can we hear that synopsis, please? You can. Let me get to the end of this document real quick where I've got it written down. After the death of one of their agents and the loss of sensitive information, MI6 brings in Agent Lorraine Broughton. She is set to work with an agent by the name of Percival to track down the information. But MI6, a double agent named Satchel, a mysterious young woman, and the city of Berlin all present unique obstacles for Lorraine to overcome as she tries to recover the compromised information and save the day. Yes, and it's 1989, and the Berlin Wall is just about to come down, but it's not about that. Yeah, uh, not not as much David Hasselhoff as that setting would lead you to believe. Uh, not nearly enough, although there is a great dialogue cameo of Hasselhoff. There are some great... The Jordash joke? Get out of here. It's good stuff. Oof. It's it's very, very fun. So, well, there you go. Without any further ado, let's go ahead and hear those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Dalton, I go to you first. Well, okay. I will go first. Uh, yeah, we, we were just talking uh, right as we were getting ready to record uh, about this film and uh, what a, a joy it is in terms of, of just movie funness. Uh, visually, it is a, a real delight in terms of like costuming especially, but also production design. Um, again, the fight scenes are lights out, and I'm sure we'll talk uh, at length about those throughout this episode, but obviously uh, that, that stairway fight. Is uh man is just an all timer. Uh, it, it is it is nice to go back and watch this film three years after its release uh, and see that everybody, uh, myself included, who is uh, declaring it an instant classic fight scene was uh, right. Uh, yeah, it, it it holds up. It's still just as good as you remember if you've seen the film before. Uh, unfortunately, I was not as swept up in the film as I was the first time I watched it, uh, outside of uh, some of the really stellar uh, stunt and action scenes that take place. Uh, part of that is the plot that Dustin's alluded to. It is uh, unwieldy in a way that, you know, is definitely seems to be in conversation with spy films. Uh, you know, your mileage may vary on that. I, I find it endearing for the most part, but it does not make the film easier to watch, if that makes sense. I, I am kind of... Uh, amused by the the time shifting narrative that we have here, you know, kind of uh, framing the story around Lorraine's debrief at MI six after the Berlin job. I think that that whole like framing device is really fun. Again, aesthetically, it's just a hoot. I love looking at this movie. It looks super cool. Uh, the, the camera is, you know, definitely in, engaged in things that it finds sexy, but doesn't. I don't know. It never feels leery in a way that's inappropriate. Um, or if it if it's leery, it's in a a way that feels within the confines of the spy genre. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking like the the naked ice bath thing that's kind of a recurring motif. Mm -hmm. That doesn't feel like, you know, if, if Daniel Craig got out of an ice bath and, you know, we all kind of gazed on his bruised abs, 
Yeah, it, it doesn't feel uh, out of tone with anything we would expect from, you know, when the, uh, the the gender shoe is on the other foot as it often is in spy movies. So I think, you know, David Leach is as a, you know, first time fully credited director. Obviously, he was uh, uncredited on John Wick 1, this being his, you know, first credited, you know, debut. If you want to split hairs about it, you know, uh, that, that's a good thing to get to say about a filmmaker on their first time at bat with their name on the homework, as it were. Uh, you know, I, th- that that's something that a, a lesser filmmaker could have fallen into and we could have spent the whole episode talking about it. But I think for the most part, that stuff's all fine. It really does kind of come down to this unwieldy plot that by the end of it is just not that interesting. It's not as interesting as any of like the cool stuff that's happening. It's not as interesting as the cool monologues we're getting about the plot. Uh, and that, that really does hurt. And uh, boy, it pains me to say it, but the needle drops are a bit much as fun as I think the song choices are, and I think there are some kind of off-the-beaten-path choices. Like, yeah, you know, there's there's some pretty obvious ones, but I think uh, Father Figure, that's fun. That's a great song to set a fight scene to. I know we, we had fun talking about it uh, showing up in Keanu uh, last year uh, when we talked uh, about, or year before last, uh, when we talked about that film. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of an unexpected choice, but there, there are just a lot of 80s hits in here where at a certain point it does kind of make you go, God, I'm so mad at Guardians of the Galaxy for fucking up every single movie soundtrack that came after it. Because it really does kind of feel uh, like it's just aggressively in the wake of that film uh, in a way that, you know, Suicide Squad also was a much worse film. But again, that as good uh, at being entertaining as Atomic Blonde is, that convention of film from that kind of brick of, you know, and I, I think we're slowly getting out of that. But uh, boy, having a, a pop music heavy action uh, film just kind of became the, the soup du jour for a while and uh, I hope we're moving away from that a little bit more uh, because the, you know the fight scene that is most effective in this film is the one that has no score whatsoever uh, so you know it, it sure can help elevate your action scene and make it a little bit more kicky a little bit more fun but this movie doesn't need it uh, and I think that maybe does buy it the mileage for for some of these needle drops just by virtue of the fact that you know fight scenes don't need it it just kind of helps uh, but again, I, I found myself uh, much more annoyed with them than I was on the first viewing of this film for whatever reason. Uh, overall, it is a very, very fun time. I am glad we uh, are talking about it on the show. I think we're going to have a good conversation. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it did not change my life uh, watching it on second viewing. I'm not as over the moon about it as I once was, which is a bummer, but that's part of revisiting movies. Very good, very good. Thank you for that, Mr. Dolster. What do you say, Arthur? Do you like The Atomic Blonde? Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to echo Dalton a lot. I think I, I think it is a good, fun watch. It's easy to watch. It's uh, got some enjoyable moments, some great action uh, at, at parts. I, I, re- I really dig the aesthetic. I think it goes whole hog on that 80s thing, yeah. that late 80s scent thing. It really captures that well. Uh, the needle drops, they work for me for the most part. I, I think mostly because they do fit the movie. I think you bring up Guardians of the Galaxy where I think it works really well. Um, contrasted to something like... Uh, Captain Marvel, where I don't think those needle drops work at all. They feel very forced to be like, see what we're doing here? Yeah. It's the 90s. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. This does, well, and I think a big part of that's maybe the sound design, right? We get so many fades in and out of diegetic. Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say. The, the, the way they play with the diegesis of that music, I think, helps quite a bit. And it never feels like it uh, underscores the themes of the film like it does in Guardians, but it still feels more natural, I think, here. Uh, so I enjoy it. You know, that father figure fight is, is a hoot. It, it, it's really good. Uh, the the movie theater is a lot of fun. Uh, the stairwell, as you mentioned, I think that last hour just rips. It's I, so cool. I think yeah. that first hour is a, a lot of setup that just doesn't go very well. Uh, but I think that last hour is a lot of fun when it really has these stakes of 
her trying to accomplish a mission that has a, a very high uh, stakes involved. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that last hour, I think, is just top-notch. Uh, I, I love the whole cast here. I mean, James McAvoy, Charlize Theron, uh, Sophia Butella. Uh, oh, my God, yeah, they're all so having great. a great time, too. John Goodman, Toby Jones. It's, it's just a blast from, from top to bottom. You've, you've put together such a great group of phenomenal actors, kind of some playing against types, some playing to their types. James McAvoy kind of redoing that filthy thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, is great. I, I love him uh, so much. He's he's so fun, uh, and and Charlie's obviously is just one of the greats uh, of all time. And so the the lighting, the set design uh, is all a wonderful part of that aesthetic. Uh, I love her hotel room with that pink highlight uh, mm-hmm. in the back. Yeah, super super cool. And costuming, all of her costumes look so good. They're so great, and they're, they're doing so much with that like white on black, black. Yeah. Like it's it's a very monochromatic aesthetic that they've established for Lorraine, but it just looks good. I think it's a little too washed out, uh, and I was kind of wondering if it was just in the flashback stuff, but it is all across. Even in the interrogation, there's a lot of that kind of washed out blue stuff, and it doesn't always look great. But just the rest of it, I think, uh, comes together really well. The direction's solid, like you mentioned. I, I think that was good. Uh, but like you, I, I think there's just too much going on. It feels like this is a, a trying to be John Wick, but it's also trying to be this John Le Carre spy thriller while also doing this labyrinthine noir whodunit. And I think there's a bit of nuance between what Le Carre does with his spy thriller and versus a, that kind of classic noir, who to trust type, uh, very kind of, uh, not Maltese, uh, big sleep mm, type yeah, yeah. Plot, plotting here. And, and I feel like if, if they could have focused more on any one of those elements and tightened that up, it would have made that first hour quite a bit more smoothed out. I, I think there's just so much happening in that first hour, so much kind of plot exposition, introduction yeah. to all these characters, who's playing who, who's doing what, who are the players. I mean, there's so many players involved. Yeah, we haven't I mean, even talked about uh, Baby got... Skarsgård is like this this uh, German resistance. Yeah. Or, like, his politics are not directly stated on. Yeah. He seems anarchist or far leftist yeah. in some way. But yeah, like we haven't talked about him. There's a lot of pieces to get on the board in that first hour. Yeah, and so I, I think had they been able to tighten up that scripting uh, quite a bit, especially like you said, I mean, there's that sort of epilogue after the interrogation stuff, and it's like... We, yeah. we could have ended this a little yeah. sooner and, and it would have been a little tighter. The last 15 minutes, even before we like exit Berlin and we see just how many twist dominoes there are going to be, yeah. it seems like they're having fun with it, but it's it's not fun. It I, feels it, a little anticlimactic after yeah. everything. We've just, I mean, her leaving that interrogation would have been, the I think, the better ending point. Uh, other than that, though, I, I think it's fun. I think it's an easy watch. I think it's uh, just enjoyable because of who's involved. Uh, and when it gets into the action, it is just uh, slapping hard. And so I, I do appreciate it quite a bit. Now, Dustin, this was a first viewing for you. It was. D- did you find it slaps to be hard? I did find the slaps to be with the appropriate amount of pressure, yes. Good. Um, All I, right. I, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, enjoyed it quite thoroughly. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, and as you guys have mentioned, the aesthetic's great. I do think that last 15 minutes doesn't quite work. I think the great last ending line of the movie is, what do I wear to my tea with the queen? Yeah. Boom. You know, I mean, that's just, that's where it ought to end. I mean, I, I'm, I'm fine with that sort of bit of narrative being tied up. Mm-hmm. And that's being tied up in those last few minutes. But I just assume they had already done that. That, yeah. yeah, reveal that. And then, you know, I mean, the last 
plane shot. I'm trying to be very spoiler yeah. Yeah. Um, sensitive yeah. here. Well, and there's a scene in a, a hotel room that's in this epilogue that I really want to talk about. But yeah, I, I get, we're, we're, we're tiptoeing yeah, now. I, like, I, I wanted that. If that's, I mean, I, I just think it's a, uh, it's a, you could almost fix it with editing. You know, it's very redundant where, yeah. where it lays. And, and the other place of redundancy, I think, is with regard to the needle drops. And it's the uh, multiple uses of uh, 99 red balloons. Yeah. I, I think oh, that... I'm sorry, Dustin. This is the original German, 99 Luftballons. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, it, it, I think if they had just done two different songs, I, I think that's what makes it feel like, okay. I mean, yes, there's, it's such that a quintessential such a quintessential, line. like, Cold War song. Yeah, and but you, uh, yeah, use you... it. But use it once. Yeah, sure. That's the mistake, I think. Because it doesn't feel like there's even a thematic thread there to connect those two scenes. Because yeah. the first instance involves different characters and, yeah. and almost a throwaway type of scene to introduce a bad guy. And then when it comes back around later in the film, it, it has a much more, I think, emotional impact in some ways. But I, I, there's no through line to those yeah, connections. Totally. And I, I mean, you could have easily just got a, a, a New Order song, a Joy Division song, you know, level tear us apart. You, I mean, you could have done a number of things here. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, easily. And this movie's got the budget to get those rights. So it's not like they God, were like... I would love to see just the rights budgets on this. <laughs> Man, it'd be fun. <laughs> but you know they've got the money to get one more song. And they could have done that. And, and so it, it, that uh, bit of laziness there, or again, just sort of trying very hard to say this is the song this is the song and sort of forcing that moment does do what you're suggesting with the needle drops being problematic now that being said needle dropping itself i don't have an issue with in this movie i think that's exactly what you've got to do uh when you're doing a film that is a uh, sort of nostalgia piece or uh, a period piece in this sort of way that you're really trying to hit a bunch of cultural touchstones then yes use london calling yes you know i mean you have got to do that kind of stuff and uh, again, the london calling one is one of the ones that i'm most annoyed by honestly oh really yeah. I, no i think it's a good one to use <sighs> i don't know i i get it it's i guess at that point in the movie it's it because I think that's after 99 Loop Balloons is used yeah. for the second time. It's just like, come on. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's fair. I mean, the David Bowie song at the very first. It, I love it. it no, rips. the song choices are, some of the song choices are really great. Yeah. I'm not I, trying to talk too much crap on it. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm okay with all of that, but I, I do, uh, I, I think you've got to do that kind of work in this particular kind of film that is going to be this sort of pop culture saturated, which is about a sort of cultural keystone moment. Mm. It's not about that moment, as it says. But it is definitely the backdrop. Of it. Sure, and so yeah, that's what you've got to do to set scene and tone, and and just give uh, an audience that remembers that kind of feel, and an audience that doesn't remember uh, the sort of jukebox uh, memory, you know, prosthetic memory, uh, to to be able to do that. So I'm I'm all for that. Performance is great, action's great. Uh, that stair fight scene um, is awesome. It is. Um, I, I although I got to say I saw the cuts. Um, the, the the cuts are very clear, and even watching it the first time. I'm like, oh, stunt person, oh, Charlize, oh, stunt person. I'm like, you they, know. They go out of their way to disguise them. But, yeah, you they it, do some kind of, like, push-ins and, like, the intentionally have a body fall in front of the camera. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. The, the sort of, they're just sort of obnoxious. Like, okay, I know this is what you do to hide a cut, and when you want to do this kind of effect, that's fine, but it's a little overdone in those moments, I felt. And so it, that did take me out, but the action itself that happened in between those moments when I stopped thinking about, okay, there's been a cut, this is a stunt person, or whatever, 
Excellent. Excellent I, fight scene. I think the strength of that fight scene, really, because, again, it is kind of coming at the end of, uh, like, a decade and a half's worth of, like, very famous long stairway, stairwell and hallway fights, right? Mm-hmm. I think the thing that works so well about that, since we're talking about it now, is, is it is really just three people for most of the fight. Right. And, like, it sells how hard it is to beat somebody, it's, uh, not even to death, into unconsciousness. Yeah. Like, and, of, and it, and it three do, yeah. people who know how to fight fighting each other's gonna go on for a while yeah and and that's the thing that you sort of forget about real life fighting or whatever and i like that about yeah. this and i do like that um our our, our spyglass character keeps showing up you know well and it does, coming in coming out the and, punctuation of there's two more like oh there's two more <laughs> like it's such a funny way to yeah. get that that stairwell fight really yeah it, it, it i i enjoyed that a lot uh the tarkovsky reference is fun i mean it has nothing to do with the movie so it that sense of it like okay sure we're in the east and so yes a soviet film would be showing also not stalker no because uh tarkovsky had kind of fallen uh into uh kind of a low uh level there in the 80s soviet yeah. film historian dustin well, over here well i'm just, I'm just I, th- there was a believability moment going you know what <laughs> no they're, they're showing tarkovsky in the west they're not showing tarkovsky in the east uh tarkovsky was prob was problematic uh, for the Soviet bloc. And uh, so I'm just like, eh, no, I don't buy that. But it's so fun that you know this, though. I'm having a great, like, I, I, I want to dunk on you, but it is very fun <laughs> to hear you correct it for some reason. I, yeah, I mean, not to say that it never got screened or whatever. I have no idea what was going on, you know. <laughs> but it probably was, I mean, Berlin. everywhere in that theater were stalker posters. Yeah. Like, it's so heavily promoted. Well, it was promoted. like an art exhibit, which I thought was really cool. Ah. That And I, look, kudos to the production design team for being like what movie are we going to put in this art museum we have a movie theater fight well, let's just do us let's just send a love letter stalker we'll put a bunch of like because it seemed like there was production stills and stuff like framed in glass or it was the, there was a whole exhibit going on it wasn't just the movie yeah i mean it was not again yeah, not a terrible choice but i mean it, it it's a little less obvious than like your, so- your, your or soviet what? film and politics pedantry is very funny. well. I'm, I just again, Tarkovsky was so spiritual that um, they were really troubled by him. Uh, they were very oh. troubled by him in the East and Stalker, See, this especially. This is how as a you film. make this is how you make pedantry fun. Yeah, it's spe- I, it's specific. It's uh, there's there, yeah, there's a real reason why Tarkovsky uh, oftentimes uh, was uh, having trouble getting his films made. Anyway, that's a whole that's not even part of the discussion. <laughs> I know, but I'm having fun. <laughs> uh, the, the, so you know, there's like little bits like that, but that again sort of frames we're in the East now, so yeah. it's a Soviet film. That's the point. And I, I, and I and of course I love Stalker, so I, the choice itself is great. I'm all for it. Uh, I don't know what else you would have picked um, that audiences would have recognized. There's a lot of Soviet film out there besides Eisenstein and Tarkovsky, but uh, it, the heavy hitters. Yeah, the, the, that's that's what any in any sort of audience is going to recognize. So I, I understand why the choice was what it was. Um, so yeah, my my main point though is it's a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I love the look of it. I love the sort of neon '80s aesthetic that's that's going on here. And uh, like lots of those kinds of things, and so I was very much taken in. The plot does it is boring. I mean, I'm not. I mean, yeah, it's a boring plot, and it could have been the pieces of the plot: double agents, lost lists. I mean, that's well, that's Mission that's, Impossible, uh, buddy. Yes, I, ca- I couldn't stop thinking about how the whole knock list thing is. Yeah, it's like this is just the plot of the first Mission Impossible. I think and there's s- also a James Bond movie that mm-hmm. has that same. I think you're right. Uh, shit, isn't that, uh, is that the Goldeneye or Tomorrow I, Never Dies? Goldeneye is the uh, satellite rocket that's thing. That's right. Yeah, I'm but pre- Russians? No, I'm pretty sure it's uh, what's the one with Javier Bardem? The one? Uh, oh, uh, Skyfall. Skyfall. Jeez, I'm pretty Skiffle. sure. Yeah, because he's going to release all the names yeah. of them. Such um, a classic spy list. It is. Yeah. I think it's also the plot of 
an actual John Le Carre, a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I think in that the MacGuffin of that story as well. I don't. I don't know. remember. But it's my my, my point yeah. simply being is that you can do that kind of narrative yeah. in a way that's engaging and, and you know again sort of, I mean you're, it's paint by numbers when you're doing a spy movie like this anyway, right? You're going to have. Uh, Crosses and double crosses. Who do I trust? Who do I not trust? And then final confrontations. That's that's how they're all written. And so you can get there, but you can get there in a more interesting kind of way. That was just it was a little bit labyrinthine, but not in the big sleep kind of way, which you've kind of sort of got to go back and draw a chart to figure out what's going on with the big sleep. Mm. And it all works, and it's even more satisfying once you've done that. Uh, even with Howard Hawks, um, the director himself, not understanding entirely the plot of The Big Sleep. He's like, I don't know what happens in that movie, uh, which is really kind of funny. It, it's, it's, that's rewarding. I could, once they did the uh, sort of epilogue there at the end, like, oh, I got all the dots, and I don't care. That's not the feeling that you're supposed yeah, to have. Yeah, and this is based on uh, the graphic novel, The Coldest City. But as I understand it, I haven't, I haven't read it, but from what I've heard, uh, it's not like this film sticks particularly close to that that graphic novels plot or aesthetic really yeah so it is interesting that yeah i mean just do whatever you want i, I do know. like the comic homage i do like a non-superhero kind of comic although we got to say that um Charlie throne's character is a superhero fully superheroic yeah, yeah but you know not in the sort of capes and costumes and tights kind of way yeah um although she does wear tights uh nonetheless uh that's my thoughts i like it i like it a lot um i don't I guess it's not my favorite movie of all time, but yeah, yeah I like it a lot. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad it won. Strong glad... likes all around. Yeah. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. Let's expand the syllabus. I'm excited to do this because I've seen some previews from my co-host, and I'm excited to hear what you've got to say, fellas, because uh, what we do is a thought experiment in which you're teaching a class, and in that class, you're using this film as part of your study, and it can be any kind of course within any subject within an upper, you know, uh, you know, uh, higher education, undergraduate degree, and, or beyond, I suppose. And uh, you are going to augment this film with other readings and or viewings. And so just explain your rationale and what you're going to use. I go to you first. Arthur, what do you say, buddy? Yes, yeah, so I want to teach a class called A Queen and a Chameleon, uh, The Career of Charlize Theron. Mm. Um, and I, just, I mean, she's just had such a fascinating... She's great. Great career. Almost 40-year career uh, at this point, just total. Uh, she starts in the early 90s wow. as a dancer slash model around the age of 16. Uh, and then starts moving into Hollywood in the late 90s and early aughts. And it's just to kind of see her evolvement over that time and, and where she is now versus where she started, I, I think it's just really interesting because I think early on she has this chip on her shoulder to kind of prove herself to be a quote-unquote serious actor. And uh, she succeeds in that and then is able to kind of do what she wants and starts her own film company, uh, Production House. And so... I want to go back to the leading lady era, and I'm going to go with Mighty Joe Young and Legend of Bagger Vance, two kind of... Oh, wow, Randolph Juno, what do you say? <laughs> period pieces uh, that really kind of frame her as this traditional Hollywood-style leading lady. She's obviously the beautiful blonde type that Hollywood has always loved, and they try to fit her into this mold, and she has a run in this period of several movies i mean she's got several titles under her belt by the early aughts and it never quite feels like it's going anywhere exciting it just kind of feels same and she has a quote where she mentions that you know the directors would back her but studios wouldn't so it doesn't seem the studios had a lot of faith in her to do things maybe bigger or outside the box and i think that probably does come from that background of being a model and not having that traditional kind of acting background um 
And then from there, obviously, you move into the rebrand and you go to Monster, which was Good also in movie. this tournament. Um, and see that, you know, she is willing to go the extra mile and really put in the work and do something uh, beyond at ordinary. And she, you know, put on the weight. She became Eileen Warnos. I, I want to ask some questions about this movie because I haven't seen Monster sure. yet. But I, I've watched more than once the Nick Broomfield set of documentaries about Eileen Warnos. And so I'm very, very familiar with uh, her personal tics and that kind of stuff. And I know, Dalton, you've seen the Broomfield Documentaries. I've seen clips from the Broomfield documentaries. I've okay. not watched either of them in there. But, but you're familiar enough with Eileen herself. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. For sure. So, to what extent, uh, Arthur, I, if you you have not, no. right? Okay. Just I'm, I'm excluding you, but I, I was being, No, you're good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For a good reason. I feel like Dalton's the expert <laughs> on this one. Yeah, expert's <laughs> a strong word, but yeah, I've, I've looked into the case of Eileen. To, so, to what extent um, do we find her to be a very, very believable Eileen? Well, I think. Or the, is it the, the role itself? I mean, this is an interesting thing about the movie. I said it's good, like, aggressively and excitedly but i do feel the need to qualify the film is really in eileen's corner in a way that's kind of a weird choice it's part of why i talked about it when we talked about henry uh last october is because it really is in her corner i i think as far as believability of like that's eileen warnos it's pretty it's pretty damn good okay i don't know the thing that i don't know that patty jenkins totally i think she definitely is engaging with this but Eileen's inability to extricate herself from her her fiction that she created, like the the film doesn't quite get there until the very end, um, and I I need, I need to rewatch it really thinking about that because uh, I was kind of swept up in it the first time. But uh, I, I feel like that aspect maybe of of it is missing. But I, I think uh, what Shirley's does as far as the ticks is yeah that that stuff's all there. But there is like a real uh, I mean there's an empathy for Eileen. Uh, in that performance that I'm sure, Arthur, you're going to talk about a lot because it is really just... It's a, it's a great performance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'm just curious because this is her Oscar-winning turn yep. here. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm always interested in the kinds of roles that get the, the best, yeah. best Actor, Actress Awards. And, and oftentimes, I mean, I think Jamie Foxx is a great actor. I do not think Ray's his best performance at all. I am on record. I will just tell you all now. I do not think Ray is his best performance. I think it's collateral. I was going to say collateral. Yeah, for sure. Collateral, yeah. For sure. God, he's so good Or the cursed baby driver. Yeah, God, the deeply cursed baby driver at this but point. But Bats is a good performance. Damn, Bats is a great villain. Like, yeah. a villain that, like, is so powerful the movie knows it has to neutralize mm-hmm. him and let the other, like, actual, like, story villains take over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bats is great. But my point being, impersonation seems to be sure. something that, I mean, Rami Malek is an example here, um, yeah. that, that, that yeah. seems to be really, you know, something that the Academy... Well, it's st- stone cold attractive people like uglying themselves up is a thing that the uh, the academy loves, yeah. and I don't I don't think the performance gets lost in you know the prosthetics and the weight gain and stuff like, uh, you know this is well. I'll let Arthur continue. Okay, I'm yeah, sure he'll, I'm, he'll yeah. continue to talk about Charlize's transformation. I, I, did, I just had a little moment there. Sorry. Thank well, you. that was it. So <laughs> okay, monster. Yes. Well, I mean, I think you know. Yeah. That's that. That's kind of the point is where she rebrands and. I, I think it elevates herself into a different stratosphere as far as Hollywood's concerned in, in selecting her for roles from then on. Um, I think she continues to just choose outside the box, I, you know, roles and and plays with her uh, her place as I think this past in modeling and, and the kind of roles you'd expect her to take versus what she actually takes and where that takes her in her career. Um, and Monster seems to be that that kind of pivotal point for her. Uh, from there, I want to go into what I call expecting the unexpected, and, and I really want to talk about Charlize's uh, comedic chops. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, primarily you're going to be going with the uh, episode run from Arrested Development uh, that she has. <laughs> yeah. 
where she just is off the wall, throwing everything, hamming it up, and just having a great time. Uh, and there's a great kind of foil to uh, Jason Bateman's uber straight man who cannot see beyond the surface at all in any situation. Um, and I think they have a great time. And then I want to go to Longshot uh, with Seth Rogen where she gets to play kind of the straight character in that partnership but is also able to uh, develop an empathy and really play well with Rogen's uh, more comedic uh, color character in there. Yeah, I mean, he gets the, the bigger pops for sure, right? But I... Yeah, she, you're absolutely right, Arthur. That it is not just like the the the, the, the straight person for the, the goofball to be bouncing off. Like it's it's she gets some some very funny things to do in that movie. Yeah. Uh, from there, I want to go to the anti charmer, and I want to talk about young adult and Tully. Hell yeah, dude! Uh, where she gets to kind of do two very similar roles, but uh, to two very different effects. Well, De- Tully, I assumed you were going to mention, which is why I backed off of transformations. But yeah, another film where she goes, no, I'm doing this for real. Which just feels like she's just being natural. A person, an yeah. every very everyday character, uh, and, and in many ways, I think she does the same thing in Young Adult, but to a great different effect. Where she is this obnoxious, difficult person that's got so much trauma and so much to overcome that she's still so dislikable, uh, and it feels very much in the same line of what she does with Tully. But there, she's able to build empathy because of everything else going on in that film. Um, and I think that's just really cool uh, what she does there. And then obviously I want to end this as the action queen and we'll do Fury Road and, and probably talk about the old guard. I haven't had a chance to catch up with it, but I think it speaks a lot to her skill and uh, just notoriety that Netflix would bankroll this kind of essential summer blockbuster oh, yeah. on her back and really promote it that way. And, uh, people know what to expect. I mean, she you know does Fury Road, she does uh, Atomic Blonde, she does Old Guard, she does action so well um, because she is so. I mean, she's what like six foot or something. I mean, she's tall, uh, muscular. She's able to do stuff. I think most other actresses aren't, and she does it well. And so, uh, over over that you know thirty five forty year career, she's she's kind of put up a very interesting, very dynamic, very unique filmography that has ran the gamut of of style and genre and uh, really stretched her to to different areas. And it's just always fascinating to see her involved with something, you know. So there we go. Very cool. Very cool. I love her face. So I think uh, that's a great uh, little bit of uh, expanded syllabus there. Arthur, what do you say, Dalton? Uh, This is going to be an interesting class. Uh, I don't know. we'll, We'll just, it's called Aesthetics and Intelligence, a pop history of ideological conflict. So, that's a lot of words I just threw at you. Not that's, all of them that sound that related. And that sounds look. This that's half the battle is just making it sound smart. Uh, so basically, what we're going to do. We are going to look at the kind of the evolving. Uh, it, it's more, I, I think, probably history class than film studies class. I think we're going to use pop culture as an artifact in talking about history more than we're going to be, you know, talking about film craft. Uh, but you know, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit. But really, we are going to kind of focus on. Uh, the the mid to late 20th century, um, how modern intelligence agencies kind of came to be, and how the shift from the Cold War uh, to uh, the War on Terror kind of changed the landscape in interesting ways. Uh, and more, it, it brought conflicts that had been, uh, it really, uh, it, it made insurgent conflicts that had been a uh, part of global politics for, you know, ever, basically. It kind of supplanted uh, you know, big geopolitical con- conflicts in an interesting way. So the first bl- brick of the class, uh, we probably are just going to kind of talk about uh, 
World War II as much as I don't want to. <laughs> but we kind of have to if we're going to talk about how intelligence organizations as they exist today came to be. We've got to talk about uh, the OSS and all that crap. Uh, we've got to talk about uh, the KGB. We've got we've got to talk about how those agencies uh, come to be and how they get to have as much power as they do during the Cold War, which is then when we'll actually start to kind of talk about art. Because I think the first block of it, we do have to talk about the ideologies that powered World War II uh, and the 20th century at large. We have to kind of talk about why these ideologies, uh, what, whatever side of a four-quadrant spectrum you want to place them on, uh, why they thought it was necessary to have these intelligence apparatuses, what they used them for. But then we're going to talk about art. Uh, and I think the first thing we're going to do is maybe watch a YouTube video uh, by uh, Jacob Geller called Ugly Games. And the reason I want to watch it is because he... Uh, introduced me to uh, Antonin uh, Artaud, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the Theater, theater of Cruelty, cruelty yeah. yeah. Which is a, an idea I had heard before, but like I didn't really understand it. And he kind of uh, broke it down and used the Theater of Cruelty to kind of examine ugly video games. Uh, the ones he looked at were the two Kane and Lynch games and Max Payne 3. Not that those have anything at all really to do with the, the history that we're going to be talking about, but I think talking about things that are aesthetically unpleasing and talking about the ideological value of uh, things that are aesthetically challenging uh, is going to be really good uh, groundwork to lay for when we start talking about uh, these stories about the Cold War. Uh, and I did struggle with what kind of stories from the Cold War we were going to do. I decided to just do things from after the end of the Cold War, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, so we are going to be looking this where we'll get to Atomic Blonde. Uh, we'll also be looking at Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, and we'll be looking at the, uh, the comedy series Comrade Detective. Uh, and I think all of them have a grayness about them. Get it? Because the morals are murky. Woo. And this is where we'll talk about ideology. And we'll, we'll, we will talk about how our later day conceptions of the Cold War, even in American filmmaking, because these are all U.S. productions. Uh, well, with the exception of Comrade Detective, which is more complicated in its production because it's filmed with uh, European actors dubbed over by American actors. But all of these are American capitalist enterprises engaging with uh, the ideological conflict that was the Cold War, and they're doing so in a way that is much different than how we would have done so in, you know, the 80s. And maybe we will look at some scenes from some some 80s American films. We'll probably uh, have Dustin come in to talk about Soviet film for a class. I'm not going to touch <laughs> it. Um, <clears throat> but I, I do I do want to look at Bridge of Spies, where, you know, we've got uh, Tom Hanks and, oh my gosh, who's his... Uh, uh, Mark. Rylance. Thank you, Arthur. I knew we would get there together. But you have Mark Rylance and Tom Hanks as these dedicated, dedicated civil servants in different capacities. You know, one's a lawyer who's really less of a civil servant than a lawyer, and then this guy's a spy. And, like, their allegiances to their country and the ways in which this kind of, like, aligns them with each other outside of their country's ideologies is really fascinating. And, again, it's not an Americana puff piece in a way that, uh, you know, some people might consider a Spielberg movie to be, potentially. I think it's got a lot going on. And I think Pairing with Bridge of Spies, which is just fun and cool, or I'm sorry, Atomic Blonde, which is just fun and cool and doesn't really deal with the Cold War too, too much, uh, I think will be interesting. But we can also look to Atomic Blonde for youth movements, which I think is going to be very, very, very important for the next part of this class, where we do kind of pivot to uh, ideological conflicts that exist outside of nation states. And we start to look at insurgent conflicts. Uh, so we are going to uh, be, first of all, pivoting from Atomic Blonde to complicating the movie The Lives of Others, which apparently some people don't really like. They're wrong. For ideological reasons, I've learned. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They think it's too nice to the Stasi. 
I think he sucks. I know. I agree. I gotta. I think it's maybe his redemption tale. I don't know. I All mean, I know is that there's people who have beef with it. I gotta look more into it. I, I guess you know, once a Stasi, always a Stasi is is maybe the idea there. Sure. Well, uh, and I think that's why we'll be pairing it with Selma. Because we'll look uh, at yeah. what happens when intelligence organizations who are listening to you at all times will look at what they do with that information. We will talk about the FBI surveillance program on uh, the civil rights movement and the various, uh, you know, you, various uh, civil rights movements happening during the 1960s. And we'll talk about COINTELPRO and uh, how the FBI murdered Fred Hampton. And we'll talk about all that shit. Mm-hmm. But we will use that to complicate the lives of others and use the lives of others to complicate, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, fuck 12. Uh, I think it's relevant, though. I, I think it is important to look at everybody involved in a social issue as a person, as a human being, and I, I think that's going to be the interesting part of the class. Where we'll also be looking at the Battle of Algiers there, nice. uh, Starship Troopers, and Zero Dark Thirty. Basically, I'm going to make you uh, a- admit that Starship Troopers is a better uh, film about 9-11 than Zero Dark Thirty, regardless of your politics. But uh, I'm kidding. I'm not going to make you agree to anything. It's your 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 grade. Well, I mean, you could be right or not. Well, <laughs> this is see. This is why they think uh, universities indoctrinate people. Well, they do. They indoctrinate them into being moderate consumers. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be an interesting class, and I think the second half will be the most interesting because I think you know, looking at Starship Troopers and its you know uh, pseudo fascist aesthetics. Uh, and comparing those to Zero Dark Thirty is going to be very interesting. And again, uh, Paul Verhoeven and um, Catherine Bigelow are two filmmakers that I love a great deal, uh, and I have a great deal of respect for both of their filmographies, but I think comparing and contrasting those films is probably going to be the most interesting thing anybody's ever done. Nice. That was a stupid thing to say. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be very interesting. It's the most interesting thing I've done in the you know the three days that I've been thinking about this class. <laughs> All right. Well, I like that a lot. I think that's going to be really, really fascinating. Uh, what I'm going to do with mine is I, I don't know what the class is. I know what the block is. Okay. There's a possibility. I guess I could do a class on the period piece itself as mm-hmm. a film. And the ways in which uh, certain time periods remember other time periods. That, um, one of the, as I was trying to think about what the rest would look like, you know, outside of what I'm going to recommend for today's syllabus, I was thinking about how the 70s really had a, a strong interest in the 1940s and 50s. Mm. And so how, you know, like the Godfather movies are mostly set in the 40s and 50s. And it, I mean, even though Polanski's problematic Chinatown's choice there. Um, and, and, you know, even flashing forward the way in which a 90s film does a very 70s kind of thing with the 40s, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. And so I was thinking about sort of the ways in which d- different decades aesthetics play with the aesthetics of other decades. Yeah, well, we've talked a lot about this with the, the 90s, with the 50s and 60s, right? Yeah. Your Pleasantvilles, your Sandlots, your... Uh, God, they adapted all of the 50s TV shows in the 90s. So, yeah, yeah. Well, what that might look like, you know, and those are possible ways to expand that. And so what I want to think about is the 80s, uh, how the 80s are, you know, and really very in the contemporary moment that we find ourselves in, the late aughts to the early teens of the 21st century, how uh, those aesthetics play out. And so, obviously, Atomic Blonde is doing this 1989 Cold War film set there uh, in Berlin, doing a lot of the similar kinds of things. And, and another movie from very recently is doing something similar, that's Suspiria. And totally. So, yeah. uh, Suspiria, I think, would be an interesting sort of... And, and there is kind of a horror bent in, in my picks here. I think it 
just shows who I am uh, to to do that. And the other piece that I want to do that would regard Berlin rather than the United States is a Daniel Brühl film called Goodbye Lenin! Exclamation uh, point, which is a fascinating little movie. There is this uh, phenomenon in uh, what was Eastern Germany uh, called Ostalgie, um, which is a particular kind of uh, nostalgia for the East. Nostalgia for the time before the wall came down. The pickles were, you know, you only could get one kind of pickles and you missed those kinds of pickles. That kind of stuff. Uh, Just the way in which it was controlled. And there's a weird way in which this, you know, I guess the leftward politics of, um, of communism becomes weirdly conservative. And uh, the ways in which uh, people begin to, in, in the similar way that sometimes you hear people talking about the 50s as the good old days, there's a way in which people begin to talk about Eastern German, uh, the GRU, in, in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way, not GRU, um, GRD? G, 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 GDR. GDR. GRU is the new name for the KGB. That's right. So there Wait, are many no. ac- acronyms. Yeah. That's there the, grew? I thought grew. Nah, we don't need to get into yeah. this. Yeah. Anyway, lots of acronyms in our heads right now uh, with this particular film and syllabus. But uh, what what happens in this movie, which is fascinating, is Daniel Brühl's mother goes into a coma, and she is, you know, Soviet life brigade. I don't know what she is, mm-hmm. but she, you know, she's like, you know, communist Boy Scouts and very involved, conservative. Again, weirdly, I'm using the word conservative here, kind of lady mm-hmm. towards the east. And uh, while she's in her coma, the wall comes down, and the whole world changes. And she comes back, and Daniel Brühl is afraid that it's going to be too much for his mom. And so he constructs his hermetically sealed world for as long as he can to hide from his mother that the wall has fallen down. Whoa. And like he's taping like the old newscast and he's trying to find the specific kinds of pickles that you could only find and doing all of this stuff, you know, which is for a, for a German audience, very nostalgic about all the, oh yeah, I remember those pickles. I remember how you can only get this kind of pants or whatever yeah. and this is how you did whatever you had to do. Oh and, yeah, remember when we went through from authoritarian fascism to authoritarian communism? Communism. Boy, that was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> oh, I love those pickles. <laughs> and, and, and so it, it, it's really kind of just this fascinating sort of way of recreating this particular part of the 1980s in Germany. That's so interesting. And, yeah. and, and so I, I think that I, that idea of nostalgia and uh, familiarity itself. Well, and it's something that I'm sure like both halves of the, the country have like very different experiences engaging with, right? right? Like I can't even I can't even imagine. I wish I knew more people from Germany so I could ask them dumb questions about uh, the East and West split. And like the reunification thereof. Yeah, it, it, it's complicated. Yeah. But, but, but this movie's kind of a comedy, you know. It that, sounds like yeah, it. That, yeah, that, that plays that way. But it's a lot of fun. Goodbye, Lennon. Uh, Daniel Brühl recommended a lot. So that's sort of the German part. Uh, thinking about recreating the sort of 80s aesthetic now in the United States, um, Panos Cosmatos comes to mind. Sure. Um, and so I'm thinking of Beyond the Black Rainbow, and I'm also thinking about Mandy uh, as two different films doing very similar kinds of things. There's a weird way in which Mandy plays with kind of an early 70s kind of vibe as well alongside its sort of 80s aesthetic. And so it's got it, it's a little more, more complex, but I think Beyond the Black Rainbow especially really is trying to recreate that same kind of aesthetic. And again, it's, it's a set as a period piece in that moment in 1984, I believe, is the tape in which it's set. Uh, the other, another film that I would want to use is Ty West's uh, House of the Devil, sure. in which uh, the film tries to reproduce 
an early 1980s horror film in terms of the film stock choices. Including a clamshell box release at one point. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so thinking about those kinds of things regarding the 80s and just how 80s-tastic uh, a particular thing can be. And the last thing I would want to use is uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive, which is a movie not set in the 80s, but fully engaged in trying to achieve a 1980s aesthetic in a film set in the 20-aughts. Uh, and uh, what that means and what that looks like. What's a, what's a Michael Mann movie look like when you pull it out of its time and put it in a new time? Yeah, yeah. And, and so thinking about, again, just the ways in which those aesthetics are achieved, uh, again, clamshell distribution, so what the sort of... Uh, uh, physical media mm -hmm. looks like, uh, the aesthetics of a film itself, costuming, set design, lighting, what, what particular aspects of the 80s are attractive to various audiences, what those uh, attractive or, uh, again, sort of um, the word I'm looking for is uh, interesting to a contemporary mind to to glom on to because there are, other, there are other things about the 80s that had a particular kind of look that people don't choose. Uh, to recreate. I can think about homes that I saw in the 1980s that did not look like they belonged in Michael Mann films. There was wood paneling and uh, a number of other things that were going on uh, you know, in the 1980s that are not you know, sort of being recreated in those films. So why those choices as opposed to others and what creates a new contemporary aesthetic that is the nostalgic misremembering of a past. That's kind of what I'd be interested in wanting to be thinking about because it feels like Atomic Blonde's doing a lot of that kind of stuff. Because Berlin, yes, there were places in Berlin that looked like that, but most of Berlin didn't. So why? Yeah, why, why does everything look so Michael Manny in this Berlin? Why, why, so why, why do we like that? What's, what is it? Is it, is it Michael Mann? Is Michael Mann the egg and the chicken? I think, man, I think, yeah, it's Michael Mann and Miami Vice. Yeah. I think, it's a bi I think it's a big part of it, if nothing else. Yeah, Luke Bresson, too, I think, a little bit, too, okay, in, sure. in Europe. But yeah, but I sure. mean, the same kind of idea, uh, that, that sort of uh, cinema du look out of France. Um, well, hey, I, Dustin, I think we have started to exit expanding the syllabus. We have. Yeah, we have. Let's, let's, let's get down to business, shall we? Could talk forever about aesthetics. Uh, well, and I think uh, that's why I want to move us forward because, like, let's go ahead and talk about the aesthetics of this movie and like the aesthetics of the '80s, right? Like, we're we're already kind of there, so let's let's get into it. We talked all three of us how much we like the look of this movie. So why don't you kind of like expand what you were saying, put a pin in it, and we'll we'll go around. Well, let's think about what an '80s film looks like. Uh, let's think about what the touchstones are that are being picked up. That that I mean, okay, so Steven Spielberg is one of the most important filmmakers of the 1980s, and he liked lens flares. That's one of the things that filmmakers who grew up with or appreciated those particular kinds of films, they pick up that particular kind of aesthetic. But the truth of the matter is, you know, if you, if you were to do sort of a uh, David Bordwellian kind of analysis of major Hollywood film uh, coming out in the 1980s, the percentage of lens flare to non-lens flare frames and or films, however you would go about doing that, really um, just... I, I can't even imagine uh, the 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 level of work it would take to, to, to do that kind <laughs> of tedious, tedious, tedious work. Uh, if you were to do that, you would find, and I mean, I intuitively know this, and I think we can all agree, you would not find that they all looked like that. Yeah, I, I'll take your word for it on that, and I'll see that and say, yeah, there's a lot of cool glass bricks in '80s movies, but not every '80s movie has cool glass bricks. But I think the things that are I think it is a certain amount of, like, how associated with a time and a mood does, like, a certain object or filmmaking technique get associated with, right? Like, that, that real low-angle tire shot, that Michael Mann thing, um, you know, that, that kind of 
driving at night and the neon uh, reflecting off of wet highways like that that kind of stuff not in every 80s movie but it is so evocative right. of of a mood that was like captured by a lot of 80s filmmaking uh, Arthur I'm going to have you do something while we're talking here if you since you've got the interwebs there I just want you to pull up the top grossing films of the 1980s I'm just you know we'll, yes let's, to we'll, frame the conversation well because I've been thinking like Rocky 4 right is so far outside of the aesthetic that we're talking about yes. that's a movie that takes place both within you know the US and, and Russia um, right? Isn't that where the fight's at? Uh, yes, yeah. That's Rocky Ford, that's when he falls to Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. yeah, no, I was just trying to remember if him and uh, Von Drago fight somewhere a neutral territory. They fight... They do in, fight, like, at, in the Kremlin or some yeah, shit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, think there's, so. like, military personnel there. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. But again, so far outside of the aesthetic we're talking about. Um, Like, Working Girl, that's so far outside of the aesthetic that we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so the top grossing films of the 80s, the top 10, are, from top to bottom, or bottom to top... Uh, at number 10, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Number 9, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <laughs> Spielberg, Spielberg. Number 8, Back to the Future. Okay. Number 7, Beverly Hills Cop. Number 6, The Ghostbusters. Number 5, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Number 4, Batman. Number 3, The Empire Strikes Back. Number 2, Return of the Jedi. And at number 1, any guesses? Gen. We already got Return of the Jedi and Empire. Ghostbusters? He already got Ghostbusters. Oh, uh, yeah. He's number six. <sighs> I, what is it? I'm going to be mad that I didn't guess it. Anything for you? Is it Star Wars still? No. No. You know, that's that's 77. Yeah. yeah what is it? E.T., the extraterrestrial. Of course. Yeah. Of course. I knew it was. So, the, bad the, examples mostly here. No, no. I think it's perfect because, I mean, that's, I think it's actually a great example. That's exactly what we think of the 80s for. And that is a small... 30s and 50s nostalgia. <laughs> Yeah, and this is very, right, but it's this very, very small window. All of these of, half of these movies are either of films that are being made in this particular time period. Yeah, and so that's I mean it's kind of the such point a that, small fragment too. Like yeah, a niche aspect of eighties filmmaking really more right. than anything. Yeah. And, and it's and that, that sameness of these top grocers, which is what everybody sees and what influence. I mean again, the, the way in which influence itself works. Mm -hmm. And so those are the films that become influential, as opposed to movies that are quite good, but less people see them. And you know, but they're they're important films, and they might be part of film studies course discussions. They might be things that you look at even in in filmmaking courses, but they don't have the same kind of uh, continued weight. And but it and, is interesting that these films that don't like that have continued weight in sort of this aesthetic sense that we're talking about don't you know chart with the the, the top hits of the decade. And I want to talk about rock and roll, though, okay. uh, in terms of the aesthetics, too. Because, I mean, even when you start thinking about rock and roll music and uh, what's popular, uh, the way in which, uh, you know, I'm thinking about Huey Lewis and the News and all that stuff that's going on with Back to the Future, mm -hmm. which is still kind of a, you know, radio rock and roll kind of stuff that you would, you would typically kind of hear. What we see in the teens and the aughts being picked up aesthetically from the 80s is music. New New way, very, very new way. The music that became like a lot more influential in terms of continued aesthetic, right? Yeah, with the exception of Beverly Hills Cop, that top ten list has none of that kind of selection. Well, and I was going to say, Beverly Hills Cop is the only film on that list that really is kind of in the mood that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, yeah, Ghostbusters is kind of in a middle ground as a studio thing, uh, but I, I mean, it Ray does Parker, have that score. Yeah. You know, got that kind of piano, yeah. keyboard driven. Yeah, beat. Well, but it's an action comedy, and it, yeah, again, it's well, I, th I think. 
really what it comes back to is Dustin already alluded to is that nostalgia, right? Mm-hmm. Eight of these movies are nostalgia driven features. Yeah. And, and a lot of that eighties aesthetic that we keep talking about, keep mentioning is, is nostalgia driven. You know, the guys on this list making these movies grew up watching those you know, 30s, 40s, 50s films and then found a way to incorporate that and buy into that nostalgia and commercialize that. And I think that's what we're seeing again, you know, now, you know, all these people growing up watching Spielberg and Michael Mann and the notable memorable movies of the 80s are making their films now and highly influenced by those. Yeah, David Leach being, a, you know, a guy coming from the stunt world, uh, being a, you know, becoming an action director. You know, he did his Michael Mann homework. You got to. Well, and it's interesting in terms of needle drops uh, here because what we find in a needle drop moment that is huge in Back to the Future, for instance, is Johnny B. Good. Yeah. Yep. Right? It, yeah. It, it, it throws backwards yep. rather than, you know, picking up something, forward. you know, forward. Yeah, all the contemporary music was made for the movie. Right. And uh, and, and so it, it, the, the choices here then are to choose those particular kinds of, you know, musical modalities of the 1980s, but not to choose modalities that were being chosen in the 80s because the yeah. 80s was trying to remember the 50s. And now here we are in the teens and all. Well, we're telling a story about, you know, spies and, and youths. These are people that have to be plugged into the culture as it exists. Right. Right. Uh, we're also getting a very 2010s 80s, which doesn't have big ass shoulder pads. No, it's too bad. Even the Cold War setting is a very 80s movie thing as well. Totally. So, Well, I think that really is something worth talking about, and I think maybe it'll take us back to some of the aesthetics conversations that I, I shortchanged, because I think militarism has a very specific, whether, you know, we, we associate a military aesthetic with fascism, but I, I think militarism has a, an aesthetic that exists outside of political ideologies, because if you look at... The military aesthetic of the USSR, or and by the way, Dustin, you were right. The GRU is the military intelligence branch of the Russian government. I was thinking of the FSB, which is the they're basically their FBI, which is oh, yeah, yeah. It's part of the fact that the KGB used to just do all of it. Right, it's part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, not good. But again, to to get back on track, right? Like these are the United States in the 1950s and now the United States in the 1830s. Like all of these different countries and different time period Germany in the 1850s like there's always a similar aesthetic across militaries they all kind of do what each other are doing to a certain extent so like you know that that extreme you know fetishization of the military sure is a, you know is a fascistic tendency but i think you can find plenty of countries that flirt with authoritarianism outside of the, the confines of fascism like do the same sort of aesthetic. Uh, yeah, and I think there's another interesting aesthetic that happens there, which is um, to add it with sexiness. That, Bingo. Th- th- I mean, the way in which Well, and that's art, what James that brings Bond, us to the, the yeah. Cold War aesthetic that Arthur was talking about. Exactly. Like, the Cold Warness kind of does override the 80s-ness, because Cold War is a nebulous uh, 60s to 80s aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. It's gray, but it's smoky. It's noir, but it's not. Right. right. It is kind of its own thing. And it is so much of this movie, I think, pays uh, has a lot. You know, we've talked about kind of the, the 80s-ness of it. But it also, you know, has a lot uh, uh, of uh, uh, James Bond foundation that it's standing on. Right. And, and the way in which uh, the spy itself is romanticized uh, in a way that's not just in a sexualized way, although certainly sexualized, you know, for sure, for sure. 
uh, in that this particular aesthetic that's in Atomic Blonde was in all spy films, you know. So we're sort of expanding our, our aesthetics now to something else, I think. But uh, the way in which they are always very attractive, very noticeable, they're the person that gets drinks bought for them at the bar, uh, whether that person is actually approaching him because they're a fellow spy or not, it's always happening in that kind of way. And I do think there's an ideological freight that that carries. Because it, you know, obviously clandestine work has its own sort of uh, interest, excitement. I mean, there's a there's a line Delphine has in the film, you know, just I thought this would be a, an exciting, fun kind of thing to do to get wrapped up in the spycraft of you know Berlin, you know, her assignment from France. That that there's a, there's a certain you know um, something sexy about spycraft is fascinating. Yeah, it's really cool to learn about. But when you see spies. They are schlubs, right? By design. Yeah, by design. And no, yeah, Lorraine Brockton is a terrible spy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> terrible. Yeah, yeah, very noticeable person. She's having. Well, I mean, Percival is honestly well, a better they, spy in terms of blending in a little bit. Yeah, it's just because he's completely let himself go within well, this world. He's gone feral. To, to, <laughs> yeah. to quote, not, not gone native, gone feral, which yeah. is very funny. I think Delphine's in that same category as yeah. Lorraine. Well, it, it certainly helps. I mean, Toby and John Goodman are the more Bureaucrats. accurate spies, yeah, yeah. That, and again, I, th- I think there's something to the Berlinness, right? Like '80s Berlin is a famously cool city. Sure, uh, I mean Berlin is always a famously cool city, I guess, except for that one stretch of about two decades. But our Germans are also, or Germans and or Russians and or you know, sort of uh, the... everybody looks cool as hell. <laughs> Man, yeah. Even the Soviets who have like kind of the stodgiest dress, they still look pretty sure. They, they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they're they're handsome men, you know. Uh, so. I just I, I find that to be an always interesting choice. That yeah, there's this great, I think it was, mm, it was Wire maybe. There's a great video that some uh, publication did. They put it on YouTube, but the, it was spies talking about spycraft and talking about blending it in a crowd, wearing layers that are all boring, <laughs> but all can like are all very different, like outfits that turn into multiple outfits. And I don't know. I think the closest we get to that with Lorraine, right, is like using her turtleneck as a mask, which is gangster yes uh, objectively but uh yeah yeah we don't the, the spy craft is bad yeah very very poor well i mean again go, thinking about james bond i mean james bond is you know in his aston martin yeah. in his you know five thousand dollar armani suit is n- uh, conspicuous yeah jack bauer just walks into a room and starts punching people right i think it'd be really fun to pair this up with spy mm. um the most of mccarthy movie yeah Paul Fague. yeah yeah just yeah. because it, that's you know pushing up so hard against that because Melissa McCarthy is not the traditional spy look, and to insert that James Bond uh, character played by Statham, who who just is so into <laughs> himself, yeah. in that movie, uh, which makes that that I think commentary work. I think it's a fun parallel to this and, and kind of seeing because I, I think there is that kind of naturalness to spy in that spies don't look like Charlie Theron. Uh, and so I think it'd be an interesting double feature here. Yeah, you, I mean, you yeah, get, for sure. You get washed out at Langley. You're six feet tall and statuesque, and no, yeah. We, we, oh, that does bring us to now that we can talk. Oh, now that we're into spoiler territory, we can talk for the fact she works for Langley and uh, how it mm. excuses her bad British accent. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> uh, not a great accent. No, no, but uh, she sells it. It's that's the weird thing about Shirley's Throne performance. Like the accent doesn't have to be good if uh, you sell it. If, if the lines are delivered cool enough. They're very, all very cool, and yeah, she crushes that, and so it works. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like she's way, she yeah, uh, just stands out too much in a crowd. Mm-hmm. Bad spy. Yeah, totally a bad. There's spy. a reason the Russian dude was like, "Oh man, I was hoping you were Scandinavian." Yeah, because 
everybody's going to think you're a Scandinavian spy. Right? <laughs> Look at her. Yeah, Toby Jones is the guy you want, you know. And Nobody looks twice at Toby Nobody Jones. Nobody looks twice nondescript. at Toby Nondescript. Yeah, nondescript. And, you know, even in a way that's, I mean, to- Toby, jo- this is going to sound mean. I don't, I like Toby Jones. I love him. He is not an attractive man. Correct. Okay. Uh, he's kind of cute. Okay, well. <laughs> I mean, different. I'm just strokes. different strokes for different well, folks. I'm sure Mrs. Jones, if there is a Mrs. Jones or Mr. Jones out there somewhere, I'm sure they appreciate. He's much more of an everyman, though. Yes, much like John yeah. Goodman here. Sure. Well, I mean, but no, I think John there... Goodman's a stone cold fox. Let's come there, on. There, there's there's a less than everyman is what I'm making an argument yes, here. Yes, for I, sure. I, I'm making a home a homely argument, and I'm not trying to be mean to Toby Jones. <laughs> no, I get it because I like him so much. I get. Well, I, I think spyglass is the more appropriate look. It, yeah, there you I go. think I mean, that's the spy. Yeah, Eddie Morris. Well, and Eddie Morrison's another great actor. Bring up. Yeah, that dude like. Couldn't, looks like everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just face in a crowd, gone. James McAvoy, yeah, pretty handsome. Yeah, he's, dude's he, got some cheekbones. Yeah, he's yeah. he's mighty handsome. So uh, I think another interesting thing. Um, now we're kind of talking about spy craft, right? I, the thing that spy movies almost always get wrong is that you know spies don't really do any of their own work. They just pay people who are there on the ground to do it. Mm-hmm. But we get a little bit of that here, right? With the uh, like the German youth movement. Oh yeah, with the the, the the with Pennywise, the Jack Daniels, which is straight from the Virgin Mary's breast. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I forgot about that one. And the Jordache jeans, Jordache, which jeans. is why part of why I put Comrade Detective on my syllabus because it is just about Jordache jeans smuggling. Oh my. So, so funny. funny. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Pennywise, um, Peter Skarsgård? Bill Skarsgård. Bill Skarsgård, jeez. Uh, Bill Skarsgård, uh, you know, is this figure that is, I mean, this is this is why people are always freaking out about what the youngs are doing. Because, you know, that does happen. That's, if you wanted to stabilize the government, the best thing to do is, you know, find the young people who've got bricks to throw. Mm-hmm. I, look, I hate to agree with people I don't agree with, but they're not wrong about how, you know, intelligence functions on the ground. Uh, and I think it is interesting to see that aspect of this film is just the acknowledgement that like disaffected people are a tinderbox. It doesn't really matter what, like, they're a tinderbox for everybody. Everybody wants something to happen usually uh, because it means they can do something, right? And I know I'm, I'm speaking vaguely, but it's because there's so many players in this movie and they are all uh, motivated by action, motivated to action by the action of young people. Well, I think it comes down to an interesting question, though, uh, about the the effectiveness of spycraft or major world leaders versus, you know, sort of youth grassroots kind of movements. Because what ends up taking down the wall is uh, a swell of public opinion, uh, you know, both on the west and the east sides of the wall. Uh, It is west side uh, youths who basically riot and knock the things down. And the east side, you know, German army decides not to shoot them, which is good. Uh, and, you know, sort of they, they knew what kind of disaster it was going to be. But what's interesting is that this movie frames it in such a way that all of this stuff's been going on in the background. It's all of this spy craft and all of this sort of, you know, uh, the Game of Thrones that these uh, governments have been playing. It's, it's Ronald Reagan, you know, giving this impassioned speech. You know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Or uh, the, uh, the, the, the speech Pope John Paul uh, II gave uh, a few months earlier. Um, I forget where he was at in Poland. Um, but he gives a speech uh, similar uh, in tone about uh, the sort of need for unification and you know, bringing mm-hmm. down the, the Soviet system. And as this sort of spring is occurring in various Eastern Bloc nations. And the way in which uh, the story then gets written in a way that gives... Gorbachev credit, that gives Pope John Paul II the credit, that gives Ronald Reagan and his challenge the credit. And, uh, you know, not to say that those factors aren't factors, but what ends up doing the thing are nondescript 
kids in green mohawks. That's what does it. Hey, you want to find somebody that gets some shit done, you find me somebody with a green mohawk. Yeah, they'll knock down a wall for you. That's what they do. Yeah. And um, there's a weird way in which I think these kinds of movies and this kind of, you know, there's an ideological freight that it carries again, that uh, these kinds of films keep supporting the idea of experts, Mm -hmm. of specially super trained, you know, peoples that are making these things happen, that there's uh, machinations of machinery that you sort of can't resist. That's sometimes a narrative or that you can resist if you are, uh, you know. You know, uh, just adequately training the efficient distribution of violence, then you can get away with it and uh, find your way around. If you're the smartest of all the secret agents, that you know, you'll sort of work your way well, around. Yeah, because it's system. right. It's not always just about martial prowess, right? Because yeah. uh, James McAvoy, the the Percival character, right? He's all into Machiavelli, and he wears a cast on his arm to like you know confuse people, uh, and then uses his not broken arm in a cast as a weapon. Right. Yeah, you know, he he is all about the smarter, not harder. That's mm-hmm. his whole deal. But the, but it continues to carry this idea that these yeah. kinds of you know superhumans yeah whether are, whether it is fighting or thinking they're right. superhumans it's Toby Jones and John Goodman and it's Spyglass it's, who can memorize the entire list in his head yeah all of these people have nothing do less than then youth movement the, the bunch of kids who yeah. just like to break dance and wear Jordache jeans yeah and um I, and it's it's funny because the movie almost almost gets there it does and then it backtracks on it. And then backtracks on it. Well, and I think that's because movies like superheroics, whether, you know, somebody can shoot beams out of their eyes is irrelevant. Movies like it when one cool person does one cool thing. Uh, and I think maybe the argument that there is to be made is that, um, you know, history is made by, made up of by people, right? Like that there is a certain amount of it takes the right people in the right positions with the right thoughts to do the right thing, right? It takes Lorraine Brockton. And uh, I, I can't remember Bill Skarsgård. I don't think his character has a name. I'm sure he does. I am. Uh, ger- cool German teen. It takes <laughs> Lorraine Brockton, cool German teen, John Goodman to all kind of be a, of the same mind about something, right? Like it takes the right people being in the right spot. Uh, whatever the moment in history is, it takes the right dude sitting at, you know, the control tower in Moscow saying, no, 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 no. it's probably a radar glitch. Don't launch, right? Like right. whatever it is, it, it just it is made up of by people. And I think that aspect of the film is there. Right, there is a certain amount of John Goodman being like, "Look, I know you don't care about being a spy anymore." Speaking of, you know that my man only worked four days on this movie, tops. Yeah, three locations. Come on. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but when they they have him and Lorraine do that meeting, looking over the wall, and he kind of said, "Like, I know you don't care, but a lot of good men and women are going to die if this list gets out." Like, that's you gotta you gotta get it. Like, I know we all suck. We're all bad. We're all bad people because we're spies. But, you know, people thought they were doing the right thing and tried to be good, and they will die if this gets out. So I think there is a certain amount of, uh, of like, we're, we're all working together and we might not, which is basically the plot of the old guard in some cool ways. I uh, can't wait for you to watch it, Arthur. Uh, I don't know. There's something interesting to me about it, and I think that there's enough of it in the film that what you're talking about, that those final moments where it's like, no, surprise, the, the, the superheroine did do the superheroic thing. I don't know. I don't know that it's fully undercut, but I, I get what you're saying that it, it almost gets to say something even more interesting. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that's just something I, I I find that we the way in which we tell these stories, and and then the only way that we do tell a story about an ordinary person doing something extraordinary is in the way background looking back. I'm thinking back to K-19, The Widowmaker, mm. and uh, even further back, you know, to the Cuban Missile Crisis <laughs> and the same captain who says, yeah, I don't think we're going to launch. Just, you know, I mean, it's the same kind of idea. And this person whose name is Vaynerchuk? Valenchuk. Valenchuk. Um, I don't remember. 
But that's I the, believe you. But that's the point, right? Yeah, we can't remember. We can't remember. But and it really is the people who, in the footnotes of history, that do all the work. Yeah. And yeah. and then and I, I I and again the only way we ever even you know we we acknowledge it is it's sort of this weird kind of fetishistic disavowal that we keep yeah. doing it by not doing it that we uh, we're going to keep forgetting you but what we'll do is occasionally we will remember you well at, back in the past and then what we'll make sure that everyone does is they remember oh yeah there was that one dude and it was like Liam Neeson yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. oh somebody <laughs> played him in a movie yeah as opposed to this guy Valenchuk you know who, sure. who like does Sully. So, uh, Sully, <laughs> American hero. <laughs> there you go, Keithan. Shout out on the show. There you go. So, I, okay, but again, you're making a very good point. We're all having a good laugh about it, but it's it's a good point. I mean, we do forget uh, yeah. go, good and evil, right? Like both sides of the spectrum, right? There's somebody pulling the triggers in a death squad, and there's somebody like jumping in front of the tank, right? Right. I don't know the name of the kid in that photo from Tiananmen Square. Not on either. I probably should. Yeah, but what we do remember again, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, was like, oh, Khrushchev sucks, and Kennedy was brave. You know, that's like, wait a minute. I mean, sure, those those leaders were important. They did a big thing, but Valenchuk kept us all from dying. Because mm-hmm. everyone else was mm-hmm. didn't have the information, didn't have the power, did, wasn't the pr- boots on the ground. In the, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, it's it's a point well made, and I think it's kind of a big feature of this film. And it's something mm-hmm. that, because this film is so tied up in ideologies and intelligence, and, you know, it's just using those things as backdrops, I think it is worth interrogating. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so, man, there's a, there's a, there any number of, you know... Theoretical, uh, into, uh, you know, interpretational handles that we could go into. What's what's burning on you guys' minds? I, I feel like I've dominated I, the. No, you're you were off on a tangent. I was enjoying it. I think the queerness of this film is very cool, mm-hmm. and I, I'm I'm struggle with it because the the fridging of uh, the Sophia Patella character Delphine is such a feature of spy movies, right? Like yeah. The femme fatale, the the maybe femme fatale who ends up needing help and gets murdered, like yep. that's. That's a problematic trope on its own, but like I, I, I don't know if the the gender flipping and queerification of that trope like makes it okay. I don't. I, it's 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 just mm. feels like a wash. I yeah. think in a lot of ways. Well, there it's it is. A, it's, it's such a, wash. a late fridging as well. I mean, she doesn't die. Yeah, it doesn't really... motivate the plot. Really. Yeah, correct. It happens the way it would happen in a Bond movie. Yep. Yeah. Which is why I think yep. you're right. It's it's a wash. Like it's in terms of like theoretical points of view, it's like eh, it's. The good and the bad are just kind of canceling each other out. Like it's cool. It's kind of gender blind almost. Well, yeah. and that's kind of speaks to the coolness of Lorraine Brockton as a character. But yeah, I almost forgot. Like there's that shot of Shirley's walking down the hall in that epilogue, mm-hmm. but she has that dark wig on, mm-hmm. and I was like, wait, that's a V. You know, like in the back <laughs> yeah. of my head, I was like, maybe. But then, yeah, which would have been the cooler, I think, way to go. She because she could have. I mean, that's the whole thing. She's navigating this plot to. Reciting it to what happened to Toby and yeah. and uh, Goodman, so really you could have had her there at the end of the day, and you know because you have an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, th- I think that's a misstep. Oh as well. yeah, those two holding yeah. hands getting on the yeah. plane. Yeah, I, I mean the fact that there's not a Sophia Batella fight scene in this is a missed opportunity. If yeah. ever there were. Oh, one. most definitely. Yeah, come on. I've seen Kingsman. I, the two, I've seen Climax. The f- I mean, look, they're gonna do it, but they're not gonna have a sex fight. Spies. Spies have sex fights. That's what we know about them. Yeah. Nonsense. <sighs> we demand a recount. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I think calling it a wash is really the best. I, I wanted to bring up, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Dustin. You're not I've actually heard that uh, observation. I think Britt Hayes, uh, who formerly of Screen mm. Crush made that point. Uh that there is kind of a gender blindness to the character that really does I mean in, in the, the tradition of like Ellen Ripley, like it, it does make your your female action character 
uh, work better a lot of the times. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a strength to having, uh, engaging with gender in interesting ways and in something like Destroyer, like dealing with the femininity of your action lead can make your movie very cool. But I think gender blinding it is, you know, also makes it cool. And when problematic things rear their head, it does, you know, it kind of comes out in the wash because it's all, who gives a shit? I mean, it's part of the genre. I give a shit, but yeah, yeah it's part of the genre. And in some ways that are sort of unavoidable, and and I do feel like I I, I do feel like the camera is definitely uh, in a male gaze kind of position, sure. but I don't I don't find it exploitative. No, I, I mean because I, I think it gazes on McAvoy just as much. It, it, it evens out, right? There's not like a pa- it doesn't. There's not a leeriness to the camera. There's right. not a voyeurism. I, I think the the most like gratuitous like money shot in terms of like trying to sell sexuality is uh, uh, Lorraine like taping her uh, uh, her mic on. Uh, she's like in this fishnet get up. Yeah. Uh, she's you know getting ready to go spy on somebody. I I think it, she's getting ready to meet Percival actually. Yep. Uh, and I think that's the only one that like yeah. really reads more sexualized. That kind of challenges the gender blindness of of things that we've been talking about. Uh, but yeah, like the ice baths, those are all like yeah. very. There's not they're not sexy at all. They're just like ooh, that and, seems and the, unpleasant. And the sex she's scene itself is relatively short. It's very yeah. tame. Uh, yeah. There's enough room for a guy in there though. You can tell that was shot by a dude. Yeah, yeah. you can tell it was done by a dude, yeah. for sure. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I think, I'm glad you brought up, and I know we kind of touched on it in review, I'm glad you brought that up, that uh, the gaze aspect up of it now, because I, it does better than it had any right to do. Yeah. Um, you know, we get a close-up on heels, but you get a close-up on boots when boots look cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the heel fighting is a bit much, though. I don't know. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is where I this, I wanted to bring it up because I think it like lends itself to the kind of like the kind of wonderful uh, queerness of the film is like keeping her in the heels is badass. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's performative in a badass way. Uh, but then there's other times where just like as you know, I, I know as a fight choreography dork, I go. That's grossly there's, impractical. There's this grossly impractical. They had to like bring in a stunt double for the wide and. Like clearly, like that, you can tell like the minute like level changes in height from close up to wide. So you can tell when Charlize is like flat footed for the fight scene versus the wide. I don't know, but yeah, yeah I, I agree. I'm glad. I mean, look, the, the the movie theater one is a bit much for me, but the car that's cool. That's mm-hmm. yeah, that grabbing the like that whole fight in the car with the flip, good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have favorite action scenes other than the stairwell? I know that's kind of a, the obvious answer. I mean, I like father, father figure. figure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think father figure with that hose or whatever she's yeah. using is a lot of fun. Those two are both fantastic. Yeah, and I think they both kind of like. I'm glad we're we're all on the same page with these two fights because I think they both do the same. They both do interesting things for the movie in terms of just like uh, Atomic Blonde's kind of like two poles that it has for its fight scenes, which get run from badass and funny to wow, this seems like somebody should have died. Like, this yeah. seems like people really fighting. Yeah. And I think that's really, I mean, that's the strength of all 8711 productions, right? Anytime they come in for the fights, um, obviously John Wick being kind of their, their flagship, but they've been doing, I mean, they work on the old guard. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of the great balance of that stunt team is the, like, the visual candy that is, like, good fight choreography, but they do find a way to blend in the realism of getting punched in the face. I was going to say, I do think the uh, movie theater fight scene is a little lackluster in comparison. I remember really enjoying that in theaters, but then watching it here, I'm like, oh, this really doesn't have much happening. Yeah, it's pretty short, and it could have been a lot more fun. I I mean, the key stabbing in the face and hanging out of his face is funny, but... Boy, that guy's got a look, right? Yeah. That guy's got a look. That is a great heavy. You see that guy walk in, you're casting him right away. That dude looks like a, a an '80s intelligence operative in Germany. 
That guy's dad's definitely a Nazi. <laughs> you look at that guy. Do you tell me that dude's dad was not a Nazi? I'm just saying. I don't know about the actor. I'm talking about the character, sure. obviously. Almost definitely. You find me a big blonde guy with a shaved head, with a with a undercut in the yep. 80s. Woo! I'm scared yeah. of that dude. Run away. Run far uh, away. I do. Do we... I don't know. Is there anything here in terms of police states? We kind of talked around East and West Germany. Do we want to get into... Well, it does make a Stasi member a hero, which is... The guy that stamps her passport and lets her through? Uh, well, no. Uh, uh, Spyglass is Stasi. Oh, you're right. That's right. Duh. And so a very sympathetic thing, which is uh, the same thing that we were talking about earlier with your syllabus in the lives of others. Mm -hmm. And when you raised that question, I, I, I did think, you know, there's something interesting going on there insofar as obviously this person's a turncoat and a traitor uh, to the east. And that's sort of the redemptive arc for that character. Um, the Stasi character, uh, Werner, I think is his name in The Lives of Others. Sounds right. I don't Let's know. call him Werner. I don't know. It's, it's been too long since I've seen that movie. But. That person sort of realizes, oh, you know, that was not awesome. You know, and it's sort of just, oh, I feel bad now. And, you know, I won't do it anymore, I guess, um, since, I, you know, that state apparatus no longer exists. Uh, but there's a weird way in which the films, both in both cases, really fail to sort of interrogate just how awful the Stasi are. You know, everything, for the most part, they're a bad... Should we clue, uh, in case you're not sure, you're not... 100% sure what we're talking about, listener. So the Stasi were the East German secret police mm -hmm. uh, during the Cold War, during the reign, the, the short-lived reign of the German Democratic Hyper-surveillance FBI, but German, yeah. Well, and a lot of former Nazis. And former Nazis, yeah, many, yeah. Which is funny because they they switched all the way to the left then and worked for the communist government. Yeah. It just goes to show you, people who like uh, uh, hoarding power don't really care about ideology. Well, that, that's, I think, where that political compass thing comes in handy because there's a left-right in terms of uh, economics, but there's also an up-down axis there in terms of authoritarian versus, um, you know, libertarianism. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, just something to keep in mind as well. These uh, are, I think it is useful. These are hard highs, you know. Well, it's... But anyway, so the, the Stasi, not good. Not good. Not good by a lot. But yeah, yeah I think uh, letting Spyglass uh, be a defecting hero, that's good stuff. Yeah, but what's wrong with Eastern Germany in this movie? Uh, is it because they have no Jordache jeans? Is it, yeah, is it because it's gray? It, yeah. They don't have spray paint on their side of the wall? Is it because of Tarkovsky movies? Yes. That's what's wrong with them? It is unclear what's bad about East Germany. And yeah. I, I mean, that kind of speaks to the movie's whole deal, though, right? Like, th this is a spy movie where people do cool punches. It doesn't really care about anybody's ideology until it gets to the end of the movie and it says, surprise, she worked for the CIA all along because the CIA is good guys. Yeah. You ask Vietnam about that. Ask Los in Cambodia what they fucking think about the CIA. Ask Iran. Uh, you know, I mean, any number of people. Uh, yeah. yeah, my point is, it is. it does get to... It's like, man, this wasn't funded by the Defense Department. You didn't have any tanks in this movie. You didn't need to make the CIA be the good guys. You could have just, like, let everybody be evil. That's mm -hmm. kind of a fun thing to do. Like, yeah. I think those are my favorite spy movies, is when the spy is the only good guy and all the agencies are bad. Right. Which is how you end up with cool, triple, quadruple agent flips. I like that stuff. Yeah, I do too. I'm a fan of that. I, I also kind of, I mean, that's that's where we get, I think, with uh, with Percival, right, and his whole Machiavellian deal is that kind of like post ideology guy, that guy that's like, we're in. Is Lorraine is kind of like post ideological in a way that's just like a, a sort of a maximum good. She doesn't want the status quo, right? Like uh, Percival wants the status quo of East and West Germany because he's a king. Mm -hmm. He's a king there. Uh, she wants the wall down because it seems bad, and she wants to save other spies. Like that's it. Period. And, like, I don't know, revealing that she's a CIA operative is just... Eh, we talked about the, just kind of mucking up the entire plot of the movie, and I think that really is 
just not good. Anticlimactic, yeah. 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 Well, and it, it you know, it it honestly I wanted to talk about the the shootout, the very brief shootout in the the hotel, which is would be a really cool like opening action set piece. Doesn't really work as an epilogue action set piece, but it's it was the only moment where I was like, oh, this movie is kind of got some gross fighting fuck toy stuff going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. because there is a uh, very gra- an incredibly um, ejaculatory headshot on the uh, lips of a uh, woman's uh, the photo, the lips of a photo of a woman uh, mm-hmm. in this hotel room, and it's a big slow mo gratuitous just. Big honking squib, and it was the first time in the movie in the last five minutes that I was like, oh, "That's kind of gross." Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. That was kind of icky, and it just like that paired with the dumbness of where the plot goes in that last ten minutes is just really frustrating. Uh, again, because of some of the like interesting ideological points we brought up and like the things that the, the film does well, it just it's a big undercutting. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Any other thoughts on uh, Atomic Blonde before we render a verdict? Well, let's do it. Let's drop the hammer on Atomic Blonde. Is it shelf or is it trash, Arthur? You tell us now. I think I'm ever so gently going to set it lightly on top of the trash. I, I think it's fun, has some some really cool moments, but ultimately it's it's pretty disposable. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, now that I've seen The Old Guard, i got to agree with Arthur. Uh, there, there's a better Shirley's Theron movie with 8711 action choreography. Like, The Old Guard's just good. It seems like it's going to be dumb, and then it just keeps getting better. Uh, this this is a very gentle trashing. Uh, I still think that stairwell fight is an all-timer, hidden cuts aside. Uh, you know what? Hidden cuts included. I appreciate a hidden cut. You don't actually have to do it all in camera. Come on. I'm fine with that. Yeah, give everybody a nice day. Nobody likes having to be the person that fucked up the thing that takes three hours to reset. Uh, yeah, I, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. Um, it is just kind of interesting in the, the oeuvre of spy movies. Uh, and action spy movies. Yeah, it, it's just not essential. For sure, for sure. I'm also going to say trash, but lightly. I think it's fun. I think it's definitely worth watching. But instead, um, probably watch uh, Suspiria, uh, a better 1980s queered. Um, hey, we don't do Elsa instead anymore. Oh, uh, well, we're doing it now. So watch Suspiria instead. Uh, I do love the aesthetic of the Suspiria remake, truly. I don't know what's happening. I know what's happening. Note. I'll okay. take care of it. Well, okay, so uh, Daddy, Daddy will take care of it. We, we've got more uh, tournament brackage to talk about. That's yeah. right. Tournament stand bracket. Yeah, it's, now it's time to get back to, to the gameplay. That's what we're here for. It's how we never covered in the final week. We're here. We made right. it. Ooh. We thank you all for all the votes and all the, the fun dynamics and yes. weird matchups. And it didn't get any weirder than this week, I don't think. So uh, we're in round two of week four. Uh, by the time this episode drops, you'll have a few hours left if, if you're awake to get in those votes. Um, but certainly we've got two more days left uh, of tournament play. And so right now we've got our four uh, quarterfinal matchups. Uh, in the first match we have Conan the Barbarian, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, taking on Bring It On. Bring It On currently in the lead, right? That's right. Uh, we have I, uh, Bridesmaids taking on the Iron Giant. Uh, we have Wonder Woman and the Sixth Sense and Toy Story... Against L.A. Confidential. So who got uh, taken out in the first round real quick? Just as So we lost Shaft. Very close. There was a tie uh, oh, that's yesterday, right. and we had to have a quick tiebreaker this morning to get uh, uh, movement there. Uh, but it was neck and neck, but Shaft lost out. Um, I know that Nightmare on Elm Street, I think, went up against Wonder Woman. Uh, Conan the Barbarian was against Sicario. 
uh, that knocked that out. Interesting. Uh, bring, interesting. Bring it on. Knocked out Pleasantville. That makes sense. Um, trying to remember what bridesmaids knocked out. Oh, actually, I can look at the whole bracket. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, yeah, Sicario and Conan. Bring it on. Knocked out Pleasantville. Bridesmaids knocked out Smoking Aces. Uh, Boogie oh. Nights was uh, upset by the Iron Giant. Wonder Woman took out Nightmare Before Christmas. The That's Sixth Sense right. uh, put Avatar to sleep. Um, <laughs> Toy Story took out Pitch Perfect, and L.A. Confidential uh, overtook Shaft. Okay. Good man. Good final bracket. All right, so where are we at? Uh, by the next time we're around this table, we'll know what, we'll know what the, the standings are. Who, yeah. Who's going all the way? Who's going to the final? Man, I don't... You know, early on, I, I was kind of wondering how Iron Giant would perform. I feel like that movie has a lot of I have love. a lot of confidence in Iron Giant. I do, yeah. too. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised there. I think Bring It On is an outside contender as well. I wouldn't be dis- you know, I think Bring It On, Iron Giant will be an interesting matchup. That's going to be a great... I, th- I think Bring It On and Iron Giant, based on where we are in the evening, are probably going to advance to the next round. I think the meatheadedness of Conan the Barbarian might serve us some, too. I don't... I, it's it's behind the eight ball. Like, it's behind, people love Bring It On, first yeah. of all. I, I think you're... I, well, you're, you know what? You bring up the meatheadedness, Dustin. I'm still super surprised at Atomic Blonde uh, beating out Bobadick. So there, there's the meathead vote right there. I know. count it. Wonder Woman and a Sixth Sense are neck and neck. I, I think there's That's like surprising. a one vote difference, so that could go either way by tomorrow. That's gonna be interesting. Uh, but I think Toy Story is pretty well going to take uh, L.A. Confidential. I think Wonder Woman beats Toy Story. Toy Story beats the Sixth Sense. That's my guess. Mm. Um, so if Wonder Woman advances, uh, I think it's going to take out Toy Story. I will be curious. I think Bring It On has got a shot against Iron Giant. I think it does too. Um, I think Iron Giant will uh, put Toy Story to bed. Uh, where it belongs, uh, with your toys, put aside your childish things, learn about how you don't need guns. Uh, they're both for ch- they're both movies are for children. Who am I kidding? Uh, man, I'm excited. Ooh, I it, love the tournament. Yeah, I would like to I would like to do a show on any of these movies. So I'm yeah, there. no, I'm perfectly. That's kind of been the fun thing about this. There's no losers. Like I've never been uh, disappointed. Yeah, yeah, it's it's we just get to have fun talking about movies. Now, Arthur. Are we going to... Nah, we'll talk inside baseball off the air. Yeah. It's late in the evening. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. All right. Well, then in that case, you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.